right, all right, all right. I'm Joe Turner, and this is the City Manager Unfiltered Podcast, a podcast for city managers and other public sector executives. And I have Nick Kittle with me uh, on the show. And uh, Nick, my wife's uh, favorite country artist or favorite musician is Tim McGraw, and he has a song called Live Like You Are Dying. And we had talked about doing this podcast interview, and during the process of discussing it on our pre-interview screen, you had shared a near-death experience uh, with me about how that kind of influenced your your direction and so forth and so on. And this is probably the first episode where before I even recorded, uh, except for Death of the Public Servant with uh, Daniel Rosemont, because that's the name of his book, but this is like probably the first episode that I really knew what the title of the episode was going to be before I even started recording. And I'm going to call this episode Live Like You're Dying with Nick Kittle. And I'm looking forward to getting to that, that interesting story with the audience. But before we get into all that, why don't you uh, introduce yourself so the folks know who you are and what you're about, and then we'll dive right in. Yeah, Joe, thanks, and I'm glad that uh, the, the title writes itself. That's that's always fun when that happens. Um, sure so, is. You know, glad to be here, and uh, you, you know, my name is Nick Kittle. I'm a government performance and innovation coach, and I'm the author of the book Sustainovation. I spent 15 years working in local government. Uh, I, I worked in the private sector before that, uh, but 15 years in local government doing a variety of roles and including things like a public works director, as well as managing 17 different divisions. But I founded one of the first five local government innovation offices in the country and then replicated the concept in another community in Adams County and took the lessons that I learned from that and try to help governments across the country just understand what it means to build sustainable innovation into what we do and how to make that real and how to actually bring that to communities. And so that's that's my passion and that's what I do. Uh, but beyond that, I love barbecue and disc golf and uh, hiking mountains and keeping it real. So so uh, I feel like it's it's a wonderful opportunity to get to join you because I know you keep it real too. And I love authenticity. So Awesome. Awesome. And, and you know, I'm really, uh, really want to dive into this because I think you are a very authentic person and you have a very fascinating story. Uh, but before we get into all that stuff, you know, can you just go into a little bit like what is sustainable innovation? What does that mean? Uh, for those, because I'll, I'll be honest, I'm a little murky on what that means. Uh, and sustainable seems to be like the the buzzword of the day right now in terms of uh, the public sector. So in everything, actually. But what is sustainable innovation? Yeah, you know, it's it's fun because I think that's the nice part is you're taking an oxymoron and making it real for most people, which is really exciting. You know, um, for me, it's about how to help people learn to be creative and how to actually implement. And those are the two fundamental aspects of it. So in, in terms of city government and speaking to your audience who are city managers predominantly, there's there's some there's some space in there for things like creating an innovation academy to retrain the creativity back into the employees, teaching people techniques uh, on how to brainstorm or ideate better. So one of those, for example, might be asking for ideas before you get into the room, because one of the things that injures people is when they get into the room, they'll only say things that are socially acceptable in front of others. So you lose a lot of ideas by just not asking the question before people get in the room. You know, what we do as people in general is we say, okay, I need you to show up at 8 a.m. on Monday. We have a problem that's existed for 30 years. In one hour, I just need for you to be infinitely creative on demand. Yeah, it's not realistic, right? It's utterly ridiculous, and it's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, right? So, like, if we're going to brainstorm better, then one of the things we've got to recognize is that you're creative when you're creative. Let's frame an issue and say over the course of the week, when you feel creative, can you put your brain on this for a little while and think about this and come back next week and let's think about it. So there's some simple things we can do to be a heck of a lot more creative with our teams. And then the other part is the implementation of it. And that's it. And, and building a habit of how we go ahead about uh, making decisions, how we're better at selling our ideas. Cause we in local government are terrible at that. You know, we'll say things like, I want to install riprap along the riparian corridor in order to reduce the turbidity of the water. <laughs> you know, and, and there's there's one person listening that was like, I know what you said. You're right. But why don't we just say we're putting big rocks in the river to make the water clean? Yeah. You know, we got to learn to talk like a human and do sell sell better. Um, but things like innovation academies, uh, the right style of innovation funding is important. You know, how do we target our organization to train these skills in because they've been trained out of us? And your years of sustainable innovation, uh, you're a consultant, you, you're a keynote speaker, you're, this is your subject matter expertise, this is your wheelhouse. You've been in government, so you've been on both sides of the coin. What are the hallmarks of an organization 
that supports creativity or allows creativity to happen because it's not, it's easy to say, Hey, let's be creative. Right. But the reality is, is that in government, oftentimes, in my opinion, it's designed to almost, um, not, not almost, it's designed to stamp out innovation and creativity because those are risky. Those are risky propositions in a lot of organizations and organizations tend to snuff out risk or discourage taking risks because there's the fallout of if it goes wrong or goes bad. Can, can you elaborate more on what your thoughts are as far as an organization being more creative and, and inspiring their employees to be creative? How, how does one, how does an organization do that? Yeah, there's a couple things that, I, that I'd offer up in that space. One is you got to make it real. And by making it real, you got to put some funding towards it. It doesn't need to be a lot. An innovation fund should be small. It should be less than an FTE, but enough money to get a pilot project or a concept test off the ground. When you do that, you create an opportunity for employees to aggregate their risk because the way that we do innovation in government is individuals take risk, which means they could be hung out to dry. A politician could hang them out to dry. A city manager could hang them out to dry if they don't like it, right? So we need to create a shared organizational risk structure that allows us to fund it intentionally based on criteria that we choose. So we choose the innovation criteria. Maybe it's sustainability. Environmental sustainability is one of those things. Maybe it's replicability. Maybe it's, you know, we define those criteria as a team and then we fund to a small degree the projects that help us understand whether the concept works or doesn't. That's what employees are looking for in order to make it real, because without any funding behind it, we all know what that means in government. Your priorities are defined by where you spend money, right? That's that's just, that's that's the in a nutshell. That's the real life. That's the truth. You, you put your money where your mouth is, and that's what's important. And you know that's a very fascinating point that you just made because I tend to believe or consider myself an innovative person. And the reality is, is in a lot of organizations, I think innovation is pushed by the individual, the, the individual who's willing to take that risk because they want to they want to do something different, right? Or they have this idealistic notion that they're in government to make a difference. And yeah. to be, make a positive, be a positive influence. And so, what they'll do is they will be the leading. They'll lead the charge as far as on an innovation or something creative. And I think that you make a, you make a very astute observation by spreading out that risk, right? Diversifying the risk by making it more of a group effort as opposed to a lone ranger, right, or a lone wolf. Because uh, if it does go bad, that lone wolf is going to probably get uh, their hand slapped in some way or some some form of fashion. And, and it takes that, you know, but it, but it also offer up that I, I am not an advocate for, you know, you know, the requirement of psychological safety as a net for innovation. The fact is that you have to have the courage of your convictions and you have to show up in this world and you have to do things that people are going to find unpopular. And sometimes that works and sometimes that doesn't. And if you own it in the right ways and you do things that create opportunities for the betterment of the community you serve, People will see that. And generally speaking, you can survive and weather those storms. But what I find is that people shy away from controversy as opposed to lean into it as an opportunity to educate. You, you know, this is the moment to talk about why this concept makes sense, you know, and of course, have some rational reasoning behind it. But I'm a fan of us learning how to be better at that because we're the stewards of the communities and therefore the country in that sense, you know, on the most local and real level. And, and one of the things I offer up to folks when I when I visit with them is, You know, the number one fear in America, six out of the last seven years, according to the Chapman University study on American fears, is, you know, local government corruption. You know, corruption of government is one of the number one things people are afraid of. And yes, six out of the last seven years, Joe, uh, check it out. Chapman University study on American fears, one of the more fascinating things you'll ever read, which usually means that when you put government servants together, you know, it's the scariest room in America to most people. Okay. <laughs> uh, but, but also that becomes the precondition for us to even do our jobs. And when you're afraid of something, you don't try and learn about it. And this is the part where we've got to be better salespeople at what okay. we do to help the public understand that. And I think we just fall down a lot in that area. And those are some of the things that, that I've learned by doing. I had between Colorado Springs and Adams County, I had over 65 pilot projects in my career. That's a lot, um, isn't it? I mean, that seems it like is. a heck of a hell of a lot. I it, mean, it's, it's a lot. And with varying degrees of success and risk, I was ultimately five out of six uh, on the numbers, uh, which is a great roll of the dice. And what I find is we're actually far more capable than we think we are. Because if I'm five out of six after doing that many, chances are you will succeed two out of three times or three out of four times. And isn't that better as a leader of an organization for your employees than? Well, let's kill off that idea because it might not work. So you're, you were the public works director in Colorado Springs. You were, I believe, uh, the youngest public works director in the history of that city. 
think it was a 32 yep. years old or something like that. Yeah. Okay. And what was your, what were your responsibilities there? What was the size of your budgets or your, your, you know, how many people were you managing so forth and so on? Yeah, we were $230 million and 400 people in the department. Um, we were managing a, a separate, we had a separate sales tax initiative for, for the Pikes Peak Rural Transportation Authority. We, under me was fleet engineering, traffic, transit, streets, and sustainability. Okay. as the teams. Um, and then after that, we went through the transition in government from a council manager form of government to a strong mayor form of government. So I was in a role like that, getting to see that kind of a transition and then founded one of the first five innovation offices in the country in Colorado Springs, which is there to this day. So Nick, you are in the public works department. You're leading that. You're leading the public works department in Colorado Springs. And then you go into the innovation office, right? What was the impetus for that? What was the what was the genesis of that whole decision or that career move? Yeah, th- there was an opportunity to create an office from scratch and have it be something of, of, of sort of my own product. And in public works and the spaces that I'd worked before that, uh, we had done some really cool work. And you know, for me personally, it was one of those spaces where I, I'm. I'm only afraid that you might fire me, but I'm not really afraid of that. So that's all you've got over me. And I'll just do the best I can and show up and and uh, encourage others to do the same. And I'll say that, you know, we had a lot of people moving in the same direction, doing some amazing work. And I, I'm very gifted to be able to, 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 to inspire others to do that kind of work and work with them. So, you know, we started a, a really different concept. All of the other innovation offices at the time were social models of innovation, and we were the first conservative innovation model in the country. What do you um, mean by that social versus conservative? I don't well, know what that means. The other ones at the time were, you know, New York and Boston, you know, so there are these large cities that have more of a social model of innovation, whereas that's not going to fly in a conservative community like Colorado Springs. So we had to rethink the concept and come gotcha. up with something okay. radically different. Um, and so we started measuring the value of innovation and creating innovation frameworks that allowed us to share and aggregate risk of our employees and and uh, and did a lot of very cool measurements related to that. We justified the funding of our office from financial successes that we had had and measuring the value of innovation. So we did some very different kinds of work that make that made for a great model of that. But at that time, you know, well, I'll say that on a public level, I was pretty well recognized. I had done a lot of projects with the public and those kinds of things. The strong mayor form of government transition had created a lot of uncertainty in the space, and and I can't talk too much about that except to say that it created an acrimonious environment to a certain degree, and I started having significant health issues. Okay. Uh, I was passing out in different locations. I was just not doing what I wanted to. While people knew me, they didn't know me. They liked the idea of me, but they didn't have any sense of who I was or what I was dealing with on a daily level, and... Eventually, I have a one in a million heart condition and it just gave out um, and I flatlined and that happened for 20 seconds. You fl- and I came you, back. Uh, you, so you, you flatlined, you're literally not, you, you, no heartbeat. No heartbeat. Dead on where, a table. Where, and, was this uh, at a, where is this at work? A, a hospital? I'll unpack that for me a little bit. I was, going through a, I was going through a series of tests and one of the tests was designed to test the strength of my heart. And it was very common for people over the course of this test called a tilt table test to pass out or fail over the course of like 45 minutes. Uh, it was less than one minute and my heart shut off. Um, and so it was something that people were completely surprised by. It was very unexpected. And I... And I don't know how to put this, but I, I, I spent what I would call four days in a different plane. Um, and I know this because I, when I got, when I woke back up, if you will, when I came back to this world, I, I ripped everything off of me, went out to my car and wrote everything down that I could possibly remember. And over the course of the next week or so, as you can imagine, um, you start to evaluate everything in your life. You start to rethink kind of how you're showing up in the world and, and, when there's nothing but the mocking tick-tock of a distant clock to keep you company in the dark of the night, you start to think about what your life is amounting to. And the tricky part about my heart condition is it's something that can just switch me off and there's nothing to be done about it, which is just the way this works for me. And, and at that point, it was, I need to really get right in life. And I started running through a series of things with myself that helped me determine where I was at, how I wanted to show up, and who I was going to be. So how old are you? How old are you when this happens? Thirty-five years old. They're thirty-five years old. Okay, 
you are obviously a, a climber. You're making great strides in your career. You're, you're successful by any traditional measure, I would say. And you are going to the hospital because you just, something's wrong with you, but you're not sure what, but nothing that you would think would be this serious, right? You're conscious, you go to take a test and then literally you flip a switch, your heart turns off. And then were you literally like out uh, unconscious for like four days in a hospital or am I... How'd that 20, work? 20, 20 seconds was the actual amount of time that I was gone. Um, okay. But I I went to a different place and and I spent what I would call four days there and and lived an entire experience there. Wow. And and that experience when I came back to this world, I, I saw a light too, but my light was actually the doctor pulling me out of the situation. And, and it was just this most, you know, what I call unique experience. And it's something I don't really talk about that often because I find people ascribe their own morality to the circumstance, but yeah. what I would say is that I took the time to write down every conceivable detail that I could remember, and like a dream, two hours later it was gone, and had I not written it down, I wouldn't be able to recall the experience with what I would call almost perfect clarity. Wow, um, okay. So so I've, I've had so, something of that afterlife experience, if you will, uh, to the closest that people can have it, and and as you can imagine, it would shape the way you think about everything. Well, I would imagine. So like, I mean, like, so let's walk, I mean, walk me through that a little bit, Nick, because it's okay. So you, you wake up then after this episode, right. And it feels like it's been four days and okay, I get it. But in a way you kind of just have to go back to living life. Like, Hey, like tomorrow I got to go to work or something. Right. I don't know. How do you walk me through that? Like, I mean, how do you juggle this strange out of body sort of, you know, spiritual experience Versus, okay, now I got to go back and live my life. Like, what? How, how do how do you walk me through that? Yeah, you know, it's it's not as uncommon as it might sound. I've encountered so many people, especially in the, in our space, in the local government space, who've had, you know, similar types of experiences on some level. I, I think for me, this was a moment of wrestling with what I call the tombstone test, which is what would be written on my tombstone if I were to die today. And he really busted his ass at work. Was it what I wanted? Yeah. And that's what it would, would have been written on there. And I was sacrificing everything that mattered about me. I, I've had a very unique series of experiences in my life, and I would have been so disappointed in myself if that was the ending point of my existence and I didn't do what I'm capable of doing in this lifetime. It, it started to come to these spaces of understanding and wrestling with these concepts of like, how do I want to show up? Who am I showing up as now? Um, who's really on my team and who's just using me? for what they can gain from me. And why do I care so much about this and understanding what that was really about? And what is it that I'm gifted at in this world? And how can I do it better to help others? But it's 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 like an adage of, of there's the life you live, and then there's the life you live once you realize there's only one life to live. And that's a different life. I call this life 2.0. I'm incredibly grateful to have it. But I've learned a lot about myself, how I show up and how I wanted to show up. So I architected an opportunity to exit the organization, get a little bit of a severance package, and then walk out and made my living as an artist for a year. And so what what was what was the what was the gap yeah. in time or space in time between this health episode and when you left the organization? Uh we're probably talking less than six months. Pretty, pretty abrupt then, right? You got your, you got your affairs in order and you're like, Hey, I need to, I need to change my life path or the, this is not the right, whatever I'm doing right now is not the right way. Right. And so six months later you exit the organization and then you go on this eight, nine month sort of self trip of self-discovery, or I don't know what you would call it. It's pretty fascinating when I read your, your profile on LinkedIn. I mean, you have this litany of things that you did. I mean, walk, walk us through it. Like walk, I mean, so when you're, were you planning on going on an eight month hiatus this whole time when you're walk me through this because it fascinates me because I how does someone take an eight month hiatus right? Well, you just realize that money means nothing and you'll be dead soon, and then all of a sudden <laughs> things get real easy, which is to say, you know, like Tim McGraw said, you know, if you're to die today, what is it you're doing here? You know, yeah. what is it? And in this case, it was you know, I. I I have things that I'm gifted with in this lifetime, as we all do, you know, and I think we all have these gifts in the universe that we don't always use. And, and we don't always ask the question and the most important question first, which is what pays my soul? You know, that becomes the secondary question that if we can find it, that's great. But what if you just started there 
and some of the things that paid my soul, you know, and what I remember the doctor just side note, what one of the things the doctor said was, you know, you know, try and avoid extreme activity, try and avoid, you know, and it's like, oh, that's nonsense. Like if I'm going down in flames, I'm going down hard and I'm going to enjoy this thing. <laughs> you know, we'll burn bright and we'll burn hard. Um, yeah. Don't, don't write a bull named Fu, Fu Manchu, I guess. Uh, I'll, I don't know. I'll, I'll saddle up right now, partner. Like, let's go, you know? Uh, but that's the stuff though, is it's like, why wouldn't you do that? Are you physically capable of doing it? Too often we think about all the things we've got to do and we don't frame it through the lens of what we get to do. Yeah. You know, there will be a last day where you get to empty the dishwasher. That may not sound like an exciting task now, but one day it will be because yeah. you will have lost the ability to do it for some reason or another. And once you see the light uh, of what your life can become, then you can go ahead and actually do some things to affect it. And I realized that, you know, my path has never been traditional. I have a very unusual background across the board. I am meant to do a different thing. And part of it is that I'm gifted with a voice that allows me to evangelize on behalf of people and this is our people. My, my people are local government people. That is part of what I do. And the question is, what do I do better than most? I am a better local government innovator than most people. And how can I share that with the most number of people? Well, I have to be relevant in this space to be able to do that, which means if I did it in a conservative city, I need to do it in a more liberal county in order to have relevancy across the marketplace. You know, okay. So you start to develop these kinds of things. And it's like, and if I'm doing that and it works here and it works here, then maybe you've stumbled across some of the things that are actually incredibly effective to help organizations do this. And who defends us, Joe? I mean, you do. I do as well. I'm a defendant of the local government space, a proud advocate for what we do. And I say, be proud of being a local government person. You make a difference in the communities you serve. And nobody says that loudly and proudly on our behalf. And it's like, right. that's something that I can do in this lifetime and create real meaningful value. So, so Nick, was, was you jumping over to Adams County? Was that a conscious decision? Cause you, so you're in, you're in Colorado Springs, you yep. start the innovation office there, you have this, uh, death experience and you leave for eight, nine months to do this sort of, uh, personal journey, uh, of enlightenment or however you want to phrase it. Sure. And then you decide to get back into the public sector and work for Adams County as their chief innovation officer. Was that part of the plan? that you had arch like sort of orchestrated or created so that you could then launch your own uh, consulting and go out on your own? Or was that something that came after the fact? I was just kind of curious if that was all for thought out over this eight month period of time when you're on this self-discovery mission. Let, let's call it serendipity. Okay. Uh, I think it's a bit of both, you know, which is to say that I was an artist and that's how I made my living for those nine months was being an artist and, and uh, selling those, selling my own artwork from photography and those kinds of things. I made a living selling wood pallets or just being an eclectic individual and experiencing my life in some very different ways. Did you just um, say you sold wood pallets? I did. I sold wood pallets as raised garden beds. So I went and I realized <laughs> that. So, so, I'm not laughing at you. I'm just amazed by the, I mean, man, you're, you're a creative, innovative person. I, I don't even know. I mean, you, you take off work for eight months. We even got into everything. And then you hit me with your selling pallets. I'm like, what is going on here? Well, so quick story, Vestas, the wind turbine company has these pallet, wooden pallet collars that they use. And I realized when I saw them many moons ago that they were essentially stacked raised garden beds. And so I realized that they were configural. So I went and got them, which is a byproduct for them. I'd pick them up for free, getting a U-Haul that I rented, drive down to Pueblo, go get them, and then turn around and in, in local landscape gardening stores in Colorado Springs, I'd sell them the stacked raised garden bed pallets and <laughs> as a way to make money. Uh, that is so awesome. That is awesome. I just you know, love it. I mean. Because why not? And, 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 and then you're also doing photography, right? You're doing, are you yep. doing painting? You're, I mean, walk me through this eight months then, but I mean, let's take a, let's take a little trip down this eight month journey, because I think there's a lot of city managers and public sector executives who listen to this podcast and, you know, we love what we do. We like our job for the most part, but many of us fantasize about, man, if we could just sort of like, you know, ditch this place for eight months or something and go live our own life, what we want to do, walk us through this, this journey that you took. It was just a space, you know, what I learned about it was the way that you tell, and, and I actually consult with a lot of folks or, or mentor a lot of folks who are nearing retirement. That's an age where I find that people struggle with this kind of issue, which is how do you go from being incredibly important to incredibly unimportant? It is a real struggle. And mentally, I, 
I did not expect that. So I, I learned over the course of several, you know, the first two months, I'll call it. I remember that being one of the largest struggles that I had was I just sort of banished myself and exiled myself into a situation where the thing that had been a defining, as I said, my tombstone would have said he busted his ass at work. Right. You know, the thing that was sort of the defining characteristic of my personality on some level was was something that I chose to give up. I won't say stripped of me, but something I chose to give up. So so getting through that experience was one of those things that was eye opening in and of itself. And then I remember one day I woke up because I wanted to. There was, you know, there was no alarm that went off. I just literally woke up and I was like, oh, I can actually see the world again. So I got I got my first three art shows and I did my first three art shows and just called up studios and called up coffee shops. And will you allow me to come do this? Because my mother is a relatively famous artist in California. And my dad was the president of research and development for Dow AgroSciences. So I grew up some very different perspectives. On, uh, you sure did. <laughs> on the world. And, and yeah. so you can make your living this way. I saw my mom do that. Now, she was an incredible artist. And I'm more of the starving artist kind, which is the I'm, I'm great at what I do. Just kidding. But but truly, you know, like um, it's one of those things where I'm not going to make my living this way. It's just something I really love to do. So, so were I, you okay? So were you doing artwork and were you doing photography and stuff like this before you had this death experience, or this, or was this stuff that you always wanted to do but were never had the time, and therefore you had this experience and you made the time? Like, can you how, walk me through that? So, so photography I had done in some different forms and fashions, but not on the scale or the way that I I taught myself to do it during. Uh, during that that period of time, I was carving wooden tables at the time, and that was a portion of how I was making money as well. So I was doing these carved wooden tables along with this uh, uh, along with this photography. And the photography is more of my style. I, I i I learned that I see things differently as much through this experience as just through my own life experiences. I see things differently than most people do. I think a lot of it's trainable and teachable, and some of it's just intangible. but it's like that's something that I, I can see and how it can tell a story that will relate to you and maybe inspire you. And, and my thing is there's just not enough beauty in the world. So we should all be doing more of that. Uh, you know, what can we do to make a more beautiful place? And, and the photography was the easiest access way for me to reach more people. So this this person that I'm speaking to now, Nick, you you today, right? This um this passion, this energy that you have, you've always seemed to have this passion and energy. Just looking at your resume and your history and your in the workplace and so forth and so on. Obviously, did you have this sort of mindset before the death experience, or did this death experience almost bring it out of you or crystallize it? Because right now you're definitely an in the moment person. You're passionate. You love working with people, innovation. You have a a philosophy on not just life, but the public sector and where you fit in it. Did this all come about as a result of this death experience? Or do you feel like that was there and just sort of unlocked it? Like, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I, I think I'll be candid and say unlocked it. You know, there's always different characteristics that I've had that I think are relatively unusual. And I don't know whether that's upbringing or genetics or somewhere in between. And, and I think the part here that was different was... I had engaged in some bad behaviors where I had allowed sort of outside normalcy to erode my character as a human, if that makes sense. So there's this part of how I like to show up in the world and I'm capable of showing up in the world and you can use it for good or you can allow it to sort of be stripped of you. And, and there was this space where I had allowed, you know, like I said, maybe there was this group of people who were like, oh, we... We love what Nick can do for us in the community. He's amazing. And then when you stop being able to do something for him in the community, they're not actually your friends. They're just people who needed to use you. It's very transactional. Uh, yeah. It's very transactional. And so right. so sort of understanding the space of sort of the deep understanding of this and, and, and understanding how long and far across that path where you know, I find that people really love the concept of, of I'd rather have somebody compliment me than tell me the honest truth and get better. I'd rather I'd rather feel the good than I'd rather deal with the bad, even if one makes me better and the other lets me sink into my own oblivion. Yeah. And that's, I think, what we allow ourselves, whether it's whether it's to your audience, the city manager who really likes those public accolades. Well, when that gets stripped, who and what are you? You know, what is it that you stand for in this lifetime? You know, who, what are the courage, your convictions and, and how do you show up in the space? Are you are you genuine with your soul or are you transactional in how you show up? 
at a certain point in time, your transactional nature will erode your character and you might not remember who you are anymore. And this experience sort of unlocked that for me in terms of I can remember being the most genuine version of myself, but not at an age where I could do all of the most genuine versions of myself things. I'm capable of doing that now. Let's try it out. Um, Because the worst that'll happen is I'll be dead. But Nick, you're capable of that now because you've made a conscious effort to completely sort of reimagine your life and restructure your existence, essentially, right? I mean, it's not it's not every day that someone who's a public works director or a chief innovation officer or a city manager just to sort of just says, you know what, I'm going to go out on my own and start my own business or my own consulting and sort of give all that up, right? I mean, there's a there's a safety net there of working in a safe government job and paycheck and healthcare and all that other stuff. So can you walk us through this transition from being a public sector employee to going out and striking it out on your own? Uh, you talked a little about the serendipitous nature of it and, or how the serendipitous it was, uh, but I'm kind of curious to see how that transformation went from you have this, uh, you know, the self journey of self-discovery, you go back to work for Adams County as the chief innovation officer for a few years, and then you strike it out on your own. How, how did that trans, how did that progress? Yeah. So, so nine months in, I realized that I would be the starving artist type and that while I was loving this work, I, I had a daughter that I loved. I had an ex-wife that I, uh, you know, that I needed to, to, to work with, uh, you know, and I needed to go ahead and make a living and those kinds of things. But in order to do the thing that I was after, in order to be able to effectively evangelize to the space I wanted to, which is to be able to talk about being a local government innovation officer who was one of the best in the country, you know, I'd already had two awards for innovation on a national level. I needed to go ahead and build credibility in a space that I didn't have it, which was counties that were more liberal, because if you do it in a conservative place, every liberal place I go to would always say, well, that would never work here, you know, and just right. being consistent, you know, California or Texas, you know, if it, yep, yep. oh, that's a California model, that'll never work here in Texas or in Texas, you know, well, I don't, I don't know what they're doing. So right. in order to be credible, the only things that are effective as techniques are the things that can get proven in both locations. So I had a credibility gap that needed to be solved in order to be able to do this next step, which is evangelize on our behalf and explain the nature of this in a very real way to the people trying to do the work. I certainly fall into the category of the motivational speaker for the keynotes and those types of events and helps people help people see that stuff. When it comes to the doing, though, we got to make it real. And that's what it's all about. If you can't explain it in a way that relates to people or they find it to be understandable or you haven't shown that you can do it, why on earth would people find you credible? And for me, that was what I needed to do was build that additional credibility, which meant I needed to do a stint in a different location. And that opportunity with Adams County was just the perfect timing for that, which gave me the chance to test out those techniques to continue to write and refine the book and the training concepts and also really continued to establish the space that I had to be able to step out and also understand again, what I don't have an interest in doing, which is just as important as what I do have an interest in doing. I think people see the path laid in front of them and take it because it seems like a step forward without considering, does this serve a better, higher personal passion for what you are supposed to be doing? The city manager who moves from the smaller city manager role into the larger city manager role, because that's the career progression do you love it? Do you enjoy it? How's that working for you? Right. And if it's not working for you, then maybe reconsider and get back to the place of what is it that I love about what I do and why am I doing this? Because there may be multiple ways to get that payout without subjecting yourself to what I'll call the, you know, sort of the deafening heartache that may be sucking your soul. In right. taking away from the betterment of your lifetime, which is just where I land now. I just want, I just want the people out there to live the best possible life they can, and and to have that experience for whatever that means for them. But don't do it blindly. Do it intentionally. So when you left Adams County to go out on your own and stake your own claim, hang out your own shingle, so to speak, or forgive the expression. What steps do you take to prepare yourself for that journey? Because it's not like you just flip the switch one day and say, okay, I'm just going to quit this job and and go out on my own. I don't think I I would imagine it was a multi-month, even a multi-year process. Maybe, I don't know. What was that like? So for me, it was recognizing that um, there are some things that I need to do in order to be prepared. Uh, One of the things is to know exactly what spaces I'm in and which ones I do not have an interest in doing. 
I don't have an interest in doing two weeks of straight innovation work with your team to stand up. You know, that's not my jam. But when it comes to the training and development of your people, ongoing engagements, the space where I can help you do this in facilitation or those kinds of things, or I can come in there and help your staff on it. I can help you with that, but you got to do the work. I'm not here to do the work for you. So I don't love that work. That work is out for me. There are some other spaces where it's really easy to just get sucked in because there's a number behind it or a paycheck and you're out on your own. So go after it. So carving out that was a really intentional move. And I understood where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. Uh, Credibility and making sure I had the right levels of credibility was important. And I think after doing... Founding one of the first five innovation officers and being a chief innovation officer in a in a in a in relatively you know decent sized county, we we had the chance to prove and test concepts and ink my place uh, in some pretty important metrics for others that will find me credible or not. Then the next part was creating a stable level of income if that's possible for yourself, and to find a way to go ahead and do that, as well as establish who you are while you have a title. You know, today you're a city manager. When you step out beyond that, you quit and then do it. You're no longer a city manager. So people don't remember that about you. You've got to ink that credibility in their mind by presenting at events or writing a book or. Or doing you know, a podcast. Do a podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, you, I mean, in the annals of city manager history, Joe, you will not be forgotten. So, so that's just it is you've inked your place and it's worked for you too. But you've done the work to find your credibility and to be as credible as you can in your space. That's what we've all got to do if you want to step out on your own. And that takes work. And I'd say it was probably two years. It was about three years I was writing the book, two years where in earnest I was approaching a time frame and I had that kind of time frame locked in my head of around here, I want to do it. And, And then the opportunity was like, you know what? Let's go. There's no time like the present. Let's make the move and see how it flies. And maybe I land flat on my face, but... I have confidence in who I am and how I show up in this world and my abilities. And so if I don't fly, I'll go get another job. That's an interesting way to talk about it, to talk about the risk versus the reward, so to speak, in that, you know, you were willing to fall on your face to make this, to give it a go, right? I mean, you were willing to take that shot and, or shoot your shot. And if it, you know, if it missed, missed badly, you know, you would have to deal with the consequences. But do you view yourself as having a different perspective on risk as a result of your death experience? Or do you feel like you were always inclined to accept certain levels of risk that maybe others aren't since you were a chief innovation officer? I definitely accept a different level of risk than most, but I think that risk is an ill-defined and misunderstood concept for most people. I think there are two areas where we really fail ourselves, and one of those is time, and the other one is risk. Okay. And we, we do a terrible job as humans at understanding that. There's, there's, there's a concept called heuristics, which is the way that we go about learning things. And there's, I think, 184 heuristics currently, but they're all the mistakes that our brain teaches us about how things should work that makes us make all kinds of bad mistakes when it comes to understanding the real nature of risk. I have been blessed to understand, I think, many of those heuristics earlier than most people. So I always had a different lens on risk, which is, you know, I think we get into a job and then we, so, so an example that I always like for groups is, you know, when, you hire, when you're going through the hiring process and you're looking at somebody's resume and you ask them a question, one of the questions in an interview oftentimes is, what could I do as a manager that would prevent you from being successful? And the answer that oftentimes will come back is micromanage me. Right. That's pretty and typical. As, and then as soon as you get into the role, the first thing you do is turn around and ask your boss permission to do the thing. Hey, are you okay if I go ahead and do this? You write that email and then you do that, asking and inviting them to micromanage you. If you have the courage of your convictions and you have confidence in yourself and you may not get it right, and the worst that's going to happen is you lose your job. As long as you're not doing something amoral, the worst that will happen is you'd lose your job. If that's the case and you're good at what you do, you will get another job. And if you're not good at what you do, desperately cling to this one. So the point here is, I know I'm good at what I do. If you know mm-hmm. you're good at what you do, then go do it and go just do great things and explain it to people later because not everybody has the vision to see the things that you see. So it requires a level of personal courage to, to live this life no matter what. But every person listening to this today is a survivor of whatever has come before them. Why on earth wouldn't you shoot your shot or ride your bull named Fu Manchu? Why, right. why wouldn't you just do this? Because it's a heck of a lot more interesting story. 
than this other side, you know, and, and you know, well, what are we waiting for? Retirement. Well, we could get the golden parachute. What if you don't make it to retirement, which is, you know, real yeah. as a thing. Especially have, in your case, right? I mean, and, and, you know what I mean? It's, and I have two of my best friends who one of them literally two weeks after he retired, early retired, he died. That's just it is there's enough of these moments in my life for me to fully recognize that while you think you're working towards something in the future, maybe you're just wasting your wonderful todays. So let's just think a little differently about it, which is why not live a little bolder? Yep, things may not go your way. Failure isn't the worst thing in the world. And once you start to reframe these things in your head, then you don't have to be worried about what other people think about you because their judgments don't matter. That's just their opinion of who you are. That I can't control that. I can only just show up the most authentic way I can show up and other people will decide how they feel about that. If you like it, you want more. And if you don't, then you'll say no thanks. Let me ask you this, Nick. You have a very much like, and I don't mean this in a negative way at all, but there's definitely a motivational speaker, you know, quality to what you're saying here and, you know, self-development or personal development and, and what not, we can do as individuals, right? Sure. What aspect of this or what degree of this that we're talking about now about this, you know, this enlightenment and, and self-discovery, how much of a role does that play into sustainable innovation when you're going to organizations and talking about it? Or is this sort of just like, a you know, is it two different tracks that we're talking about here? Because I, I get, forgive me, but I've only worked in small organizations up until recently. I've never gone through a, you know, an innovation program or had an innovation officer or anything like that. I've been my, I've been my own innovation officer for, for lack of a better word, you know. Um, what level of sustainable innovation deals with individuals in the organization bettering themselves in order to accomplish that objective? Is that, does that make sense what I'm asking? I think so. Let me take a shot at it. And if I get it wrong, let me know. I, I think that, you know, what I found from innovative cultures just in general is that they have some common characteristics. I, I recognize that the motivational speaking part of me is the high part of the conversation we're talking about. And one, I am a keynote speaker. So it's my nature to kind of go down that path. But it's also the part where if I couldn't make it real, I wouldn't have a business. So, so the space of sustainable innovation requires creating some different thought processes and some rules related to that and, and recognizing that it's both process and philosophy. Okay. And you have to teach both. So the mindset is important. The most innovative cultures and communities that I work with recognize that failure is, is as worthy of being recognized as success. And they are not afraid of either. Um, so when you hear the people who failed bragging as much as the people who succeeded, I know I'm in an organizational culture where people accept that trying new things is a part of the way that they go about things. I tend to find that innovative cultures are positive cultures in general, no shocker there, usually motivated by some heavy stick or carrot out there. So what is it they're working to, you know, in a well-funded culture, you don't find a lot of innovation in my experience. Why is that? Because it's kind of the rule of opposites. If you have a lack of resources, then you have no choice but to innovate. But if you have the resources, then why would I rethink the way we're doing it? Because it's been working for us for this long. So there's just not the same impetus to change unless the group's leading it. And I've, I've met this for sure. Uh, but unless the folks leading it are very much in the mindset of we want to think differently, we would like to push the boundaries of how we're showing up. And I've met them as well. It's just less common. I, um, I agree with you 100% on that. And that's um, I'm glad you sort of articulated that. I wanted to bring that out because I'm a big believer in God, this is going to I got to be careful sometimes when I talk on these podcasts because I am currently employed and, you know, people listen to what I say. Uh, but I am a big believer that. Sometimes you need to starve an organization or department of resources to try to get to a point of like, hey, do you really need that? Because necessity is the mother of invention, right? Or, or that type of deal, right? And if you have all the resources, you get fat, dumb, and happy because there is no need to innovate or to do things differently because you know you always have the money. You always have the funds. Uh, but I have found um, that when I'm able to restrict the amount of resources available, uh, either through necessity or by choice, that it leads to interesting developments within that department or the organization. And I guess my question would be for you, when you are being sought out by various city cities or county organizations to lead innovation efforts, where are they falling on this um, continuum of 
self-initiating, obviously it's all self-initiated, but uh, initiating this innovative work because of necessity versus um, sort of philosophical principles that are driving it? It's an interesting question that you ask. I, I think the customer types that I encounter might be helpful to framing it out a little bit. The customers that I tend to, to have come to me are, are high performers who want to continue to be high performers. Okay. So if we're already a leading organization, and Scottsdale, Arizona comes to mind. They, they work with a lot of different folks. They're a really high-performing organization. They do a lot right. So they've got a lot going in the right direction, and they want to continue to be that kind of a high-performer. Then there's organizations that maybe are the exact opposite end of the spectrum. They're broken. They don't know where to go next. They know that something has to change, and they have no idea where to begin. Can you help us start to fix culture that has got some breaks in it and, and okay. that, that is that? And then there's maybe this third type, which isn't the middle. It's actually the new city or county manager coming in with a previous city or county manager who's existed for 20 to 30 years. So the staff that's already there has been trained over a long course of time on how to deal with an individual. And those organizations, the new individual is trying to find a way to create a clean break from the past to be able to craft a vision for the future. So those tend to be the three types of organizations that I see sort of really seek it out. And then there are what I'll call unintentional customers who recognize that things that I'm saying resonate with parts of what they're trying to deal with. And, and maybe those are more individual or, or one-off efforts versus ongoing efforts. Okay. You know, so when you talk about an organization and sustainable innovation, what generally speaking is an organization attempting to do? Are they attempting to do an organization-wide systemic overhaul or change, or are they trying to focus on a specific department or program? Or can you walk us through that? How does what's the what's the mindset, generally speaking, of a customer or client that you have? I think it's probably eighty percent the entire organization, twenty percent a specific department needs some help. It doesn't work when you're inflicted upon somebody. So how it's couched is incredibly important because I'm not here to come in and fix you. I think that's a ridiculous concept. And I would say no to that job all day. <laughs> okay. I think the other side of it is the part where it's, what is it you're trying to accomplish? What is it you're meaningfully trying to do? And I won't work with customers that have an interest. I, you know, they, they, the council came back to me and said they want some innovation stuff. I don't know what that means. Come on in and let us know. It's like, no, I don't know that you have a genuineness behind what you're after here. It can't be lip service. It's got to be, we recognize there's risk involved. So those are some of the things as I give a survey, but I also ask questions of the communities, you know, are you willing to take a certain level of risk for this? Tell me what you're trying to accomplish. Oh, well, we're trying to find a way to innovate, but we need to make sure that people are protected in that process, or we don't know how to do this. What would you recommend? Those are situations where maybe they're showing an earnestness to do something. And that to me is probably one of the most, it is it is one of the most important characteristics I can see out of a city manager, an assistant city manager that's coming and we're having that conversation is I need to see the level of earnestness about we want to do this. We're willing to go ahead and deal with hard things to be able to do this because innovation's not easy. And anybody who's telling you otherwise would be lying to you. It's also not impossible. And anybody who's telling you that is lying to you. So there's a space in between we need to explore more fully. So let's talk about earnestness for a second then. Do you find that your client communities are generally being, I guess, led by the manager, the county, city or county executive who's coming and approaching you with the support of the governing body? Or do you find that it's usually governing body led with the city manager just sort of trying to do their best to honor the vision and implementation of the governing body? Because I would assume the latter is not as sexy as the former. I'm assuming you'd prefer to have the executive want to be the one passionately deriving that that effort, right? I've learned that that's perilous too, Joe. So, so I, I think my answer is yes. I've seen both, where the the they you know the the council has it as a st strategic priority, and the city manager, administrator, whoever is is trying to figure out how to deal with that situation. So that's a that's one that I've learned. But the other type of this gets a little. You know, the part where you have a specific person in a city manager role, some of my best customers have been terminated for 
BS reasons. And, and I, you know, I think we went back and forth on one as a matter of fact, you know, but I've seen the previous administrators get chased out. And as a result of that, anything attached to them gets chucked out the door too. So attaching a, a an innovation effort to a specific individual like a city manager could be dangerous. Got you. As it can be when we have a changeover in the politics of council. So the, the goal is to create a structure that becomes less assailable by either one of those forces. And so as we describe it, you know, can we define what innovation means for your community and come up with some criteria for that so that we can aggregate risk so it's not individual in nature, but it's organizational in nature. And if council buys off on that, then all we have to do is go back and maybe redefine the criteria that we use for the next batch of innovation pilots that we're going to do. So when employees come to us with their ideas, we're able to say this matches and aligns with what we're trying to accomplish as an organization. This one does not. Here's the risk profile. Here's a number. And council members or city managers can say, I'd like to increase the risk or decrease the risk, or I, we need to change the metrics because we have a new council now. So, so that way the structure survives any administration or any turnover of staff uh, in, in that level. But it definitely needs to come from the top the innovation department buried under the Office of Information Technology ain't going to work. It'll work for a little while and it'll put too much pressure on your IT people and it'll bastardize the concept of innovation. And you got all kinds of challenges with that. So so there's a right place for it to exist as well. So when you're looking at doing a, taking on a client, for example, and working with innovation on, on an innovation project, right? Trying to bring innovation to the organization. Are there certain sizes of the organization, minimum size, that make the most sense? I mean, obviously, there's there's fiscally, you know, budget constraints for small communities and so forth and so on. But I don't think you're I don't think you're necessarily suggesting or advocating that every community you work with creates an innovation office or a standalone oh, no. department, correct? Okay. No, definitely not. Yeah. You, you okay. definitely don't need to do that. It's okay. great if you can to create centralized accountability and tracking. You know, that's useful uh, at a certain size. Below that size, it makes zero sense to do that. And I certainly wouldn't advocate for that. However, I will state that it is important for us to be very clear about the definition of what innovation means to our community so that our employees can judge whether concepts are there. I also don't believe in large innovation funds. I know some communities that have these incredible innovation funds. They should not be large. They should be less than an FTE's worth, just enough to create money for pilot projects to get off the ground and test concepts. Then if the idea works, they go through a budgetary process to get the funding or not. They make the business case the rest of us do. So there's ways to structure it that I think are incredibly important to the success of the program. And I see people borrowing ideas they see, but the small community and the big community have completely different variables for setting that up. And the size of the fund is not a guarantee, in fact, and sometimes it's a deterrent for your success. So scarcity of resources, but resources exist, is important, as well as how we structure the way that we're going about getting ideas, and then how we evaluate the innovation of those ideas and represent that value to not only uh, the community, but also our electeds. What is your general vibe when, it, when you talk about uh how the, how the community defines innovation, are you literally going out and doing, I don't know, public workshops or things like that with the community to talk about these things? Or can you elaborate more on the citizen involvement or engagement in this process? Because I feel like that can be pretty perilous trying to get the public no. involved in an innovation effort. I, I wouldn't do that, Joe. I, I, okay. I think for me, you know, there's an opportunity. I look at, uh, you know, as a downward extension of the leadership of the organization, it's the elected officials who are here to help us determine what those criteria look like. So okay. I will definitely go to elected officials and give them a, a list of words and allow them to suggest their own and go through a process where we can define six criteria, for example, or, or we can create a cutoff. It, it could be very, you know, you can, get a little malleable about this. Part, can you, but. can you give me an example of criteria that we might use an example? I'm, I'm just to give the audience a little bit more of a kind of a sort of a concrete sort of framework of what we're talking about. Sure. We, we might use terms. So for the way that I would frame it out is if we were evaluating projects, what criteria would be most important to assess the innovation value of that concept? So I might offer up 20 terms. And some of those we could source beforehand and have people suggest terms, but it could be creativity as a term, reliability, replicability, uh, fiscal sustainability, environmental sustainability, and on and on. And we can have these 
these 20 words narrowed down to a list of, you know, four to eight terms that we will then on a scale of one through 10 use to evaluate the efficacy of pilot projects brought forward by our employees or in some cases the public. Okay. So now everybody knows these are the four to eight criteria that we're going to judge innovation on. Then we find the right group of people to help evaluate whether those projects hit that target. We can create a risk profile and say, you know, we'd like to be a riskier community. We'd like to take some shots at the moon and see if we can land amongst the stars. And some are like, you know what? We, we like the idea, but we'd like to dip our toes in the water first. Okay, well, your risk profile might be a 20% risk profile. So we can determine high, medium, low on different projects and create a portfolio of projects that then hits your risk profile along with the terms that innovation means. And at least it creates some guarantees that staff isn't thinking that that one type of innovative project is what you're after when you're after the exact opposite of that. But because innovation means so many different things to so many different people, the challenge becomes for most people, how do I make it real? And understanding the criteria we evaluate on is the most important thing for that. Right, right. And I think one of the things you got to be very careful on too, I would think is um, having sort of one standard of criteria or metrics that are established at the beginning of the process. And then at the end of the process, trying to use different metrics to gauge success when that's not really a fair representation of the process, right? And that's where you're going to get tripped up with your city manager. That's where you're going to get tripped up, especially with your council, is they're going to disagree after the fact about what the criteria were. But just like you preach with folks about the contract and getting the contract laid out, knowing the specifics of that, exactly. Why on earth would, you know, you're not sitting here not signing the contract because it's, you know, if it's vague, you got to lock it down. You got to know these things and you got to be very specific about it so that it doesn't get worked against you later. And even then it, it can. So sometimes I've seen organizations that have the criteria well-defined and, and they just went a bridge too far with it, but it's much less often than those that have no criteria whatsoever, because then it becomes, we believe in you employees, go figure out the funding, <laughs> go figure out what we mean by it, and then go do great things. And if you fail, it's on you. Well, yeah. there's nothing like that motivational message for people uh, <laughs> to get them pumped up about innovation. And by the way, <laughs> it's in addition to your job. Yeah, right, right, right. right. Yeah, so, that's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just do amazing things, get paid the same. And, uh, you know. Hey, hey, Nick, so as we wrap up this interview, and I don't know if you're going to feel comfortable answering this question, so I'm going to give you an out or, or whatnot, but do you mind giving the audience an example? Maybe you don't need to name this the community uh, if you don't want to, but can you give an example of a success story and maybe give a sort of like a little bit of a, a case study on what you've done and the benefits that you've brought to the organization and, and sort of walk the, the listeners through that process? Sure, sure. I think one of my favorite examples, and, and again, you know, there's no part where you're an outsider that can claim credit for any of the thing, but setting people on the path of a great journey that I believe in. I think Dubuque, Iowa is one of my favorite customers, along with Bakersfield, California. And, and maybe those are two less typical examples. What I love about Dubuque, Iowa is, is we created some high-performance government frameworks that they could use to measure their year-over-year -year success on hard metrics, as well as what I call some soft metrics, and really to dig into the organizational culture. They did some stuff right out of the gate where they were able to eliminate thousands of phone calls a month to certain departments that, that created no value. They turned around and created their actual core values. They started imbuing it in everything they do. They went through and you know removed sections of you know what I call a very complicated strategic plan. They got down to something that's sensible and, and achievable for their employees. They've done the hard work of looking in the mirror and they've not been perfect, but they continue to make a commitment to improvement. And the leadership, especially Corey Burback there, Mike Van Milligan, love, love him too. You know, I think that is a group of people that are committed to the betterment of that organization and maybe just recognize that adopting things that they could push themselves against allowed them to be a better version of themselves. It's a beautiful community that nobody thinks about and should. It, Dubuque is a, just a great place to go. So I, I love them because it's not this out-of-the-box wild stuff necessarily. They just did the hard work and had the openness of mindset. It's in their strategic plan. They talk about it during their budget process and how they're pushing their own boundaries. And they own their mistakes. And I really adore them for that. And that's the right culture building that I think over the course of the next even five years will pay off in spades even more for them. 
Bakersfield, California, in terms of wild ideas, uh, you know, Christian out there and their team, you know, Gary Scott, uh, Christy Tenter and the rest, they're just doing amazing work. And again, Bakersfield's not the one that jumps to people's minds, but uh, they, they did an event for leadership development that involved uh, barbecue and turning that into teamwork and leadership lessons. And now I'm actually partnering with that pitmaster. We're doing these across the country. Uh, but again, how do we build these concepts in ways that are relatable and different for folks? They have reinvented several of their processes, uh, just was out there doing their development services. They have taken major strides for the last year. So I see these groups that maybe were constrained before opening up their mindsets and embracing things that are riskier and not always getting it right, but demonstrating their continued commitment to looking in the mirror evaluating themselves and continued improvement is what they're after. I just appreciate those kinds of things. I think for the ones that get it already, they're rolling and they're humming. And there's some great examples of them already doing right stuff. I would feel bad saying, here's where I influence their mindset in some of those cases. But with these organizations, I've really seen them embrace things. Uh, You know, regular community cleanups in Bakersfield, nothing that was done before new city manager Christian comes in. He's been through Stockton. He re he dealt with Stockton and was one of those players who dealt with the bankruptcy of Stockton. And so his mindset is I'm here to make this the best community I can. We're going to listen to the people and we're going to do some stuff. And I want you to push the boundaries. And every time I've ever heard him speak, he does that. And every time I see the employees respond, that number continues to climb. uh, Yeah. You know, they support us and they believe in innovation God bless those public sector managers and executives who want to push the boundaries. Cause I just, I mean, I don't think we can push them hard enough to be honest. I mean, the more we push, I think the, the more innovative and creative we can get and the more successful we can be. And at the end of the day, you know, I've talked about this before in other settings, you know, the demands on government by the people are only increasing. Right. And it's seemingly the resources seem to be getting, uh, you know, smaller and smaller. And so we have to be far more innovative to deal with these demands that and expectations that the people have on us as public servants. And I think that in order to be a successful manager, uh, you have to be innovative, you have to be creative, and you have to be willing to take those risks. And hopefully that can be supplemented by a governing body who's going to share that same view and be in alignment with the executive so that those results can be achieved, right? Yeah. I want to throw out one other example with you on that too. Sure. To your point, it's it's the willingness to see things that others are incapable of seeing that allows you to do that. And and Little Elm, Texas, Matt Mueller and Caitlin Biggs out there, Little Elm, Texas, and and they've done some cool stuff. They just landed, and Little Elm, Texas is northern suburbs of Dallas. If you did don't know that area, but they are an intentional community. They're relatively young and new but their focus is on events and creating a community and they can do that with relatively new footing. They don't have a lot of historical baggage, but they're taking advantage of that. They landed the Harry Potter experience curated by Warner brothers. And next year it travels overseas. It goes to like one community around the world every year and little Elm, Texas, a place that most of, you know, most of the listeners maybe haven't heard of is hosting this event I happen to be out there doing work with them. I was staying at a hotel, and I'll just say real quick. What I learned is if you're a casual fan, this might not be for you because I was the only <laughs> guy not dressed up like a character walking through there. But just the courage that a community that's maybe 15 years into existence to go out and pitch the biggest, you know, one of the biggest events on the planet and to land that says they've got their mindset right. And, and they're just a community that I, also see just doing amazing things. So small, medium, large, there's examples of great stuff going on everywhere. And it's, it's the courage of these city managers that matters in terms of delivering that to the public. That's awesome, Nick. Hey, uh, we're going to wrap up here before we go. Can you tell the audience how they can find you, your website, you know, your, your book name again, I'm going to link to it all obviously in the show notes, but before we uh, head on out, why don't you uh, tell the folks how they can reach you or find you? Thanks, Joe. Uh, Sustainovation.us. If you Google Sustainovation or Nick Kittle, then you will find me. And on LinkedIn, I'd love to connect with you. And if you've got something wild going on, I'd love to be a part of making it wilder. 
Awesome. Awesome. Hey, thank you, Nick. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, you got a fascinating life story and, and your, your experience. And I, that's obviously, I think a lot of us in this day and age where this job is getting increasingly difficult with the, with the partisan political environment that we're in, uh, the tough social media uh, environment that we're in. I think a lot of managers are, are doing a lot of soul searching lately as far as what they want to do with their life and what they want to do with their careers. And I think you've had a very a very significant event that causes you to do some soul searching. And I think a lot of us are doing uh, more soul searching uh, on the regular basis as a result of these recent experiences. And hopefully folks will listen to your, uh, to this interview and, and take to heart some of those experiences and, uh, and, and look at your LinkedIn bio, because I think your LinkedIn bio is pretty fascinating and pretty uh, inspiring for those individuals who say, you know what, I need to throw a curveball in my life and uh, shake some things up, whether whether that means quitting a job or just actually going out there and uh, pursuing one of those passions they've always wanted to pursue, but never, quote unquote, find the time to do, right? Because uh, we are not getting the time back <laughs> and the time well, is our most important resource. And, and, and anybody out there, Joe, who's listening and maybe is wondering what that next step looks like and you want to talk about it, I'm on your team, period. And that's awesome. Team Us, and I'm, I'm on your team. And thanks for the opportunity. I really love what you're doing here. And thanks for being that voice and that person in the corner for local government leaders as well. I really honor you for that. Thanks, man. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I am Joe Turner. This is the City Manager Unfiltered Podcast, a podcast for city managers and other public sector executives. If you like what you're hearing, please hit that subscribe or follow button. Please leave a rating and a review on your platform of choice, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you very much for listening. Bye.